You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Justice is Served, the show where we give you all of the latest in legal news. I'm your host, Mari Fagel, and I am joined by my lovely co-hosts, Lonnie Coombs and Rawa Gebre-Ab in two beautiful colors, might I add, and our new beautiful mic colors in eggplant. <laughs> so um, we are back to the Oscar Pistorius case for Case of the Week. We mm-hmm. took a break as the trial took a break, uh, and now... Uh, this has been, in my mind, one of the most fascinating weeks of the trial because Oscar Pistorius himself took the stand. Mm-hmm. So I have some opinions on this, and I want to know if you guys agree with this. I think that the prosecutor, uh, Jerry Nell, is coming off way too strong, and I think that his approach is backfiring on him. So let me explain. Oscar Pistorius has taken the stand in his own defense. Uh, you know, he says, I did not intend to kill Riva or anybody else for that matter. He kind of explained his version of, of events that night, which is, you know, pretty much in line with his version of events from the moment it happened. He hasn't really changed his story, though the prosecutor did try to press him on that. Um... I think that the prosecutor is trying to either get him to trip over his words, catch him in a lie or something, but his approach is so strong. And we've seen Oscar Pistorius vomiting, crying. He's a very emotional person. And we talked about on this show in the past whether that is something that the judge um, would be receptive to since the judge is the only trier of fact in this case. There is no jury, though the judge will have two kind of of special experts helping her in her decision. I'm going to just share with you guys a couple moments that the prosecutor, I think, came off poorly and I want to see if you agree so first at one point he said you shot and killed her say it I shot and killed Reva Steenkamp you know he was kind of prompting him to say it but kind of in an aggressive way then at one point he kind of took the defense by surprise by showing a video of Oscar Pistorius shooting a watermelon at a gun range and calling it a zombie stopper um which, first of all, the defense said, how is this relevant? And, you know, there have been a couple instances where in, a, in American court, these prior instances may not have um, been admissible evidence. You know, talking about him shooting through a car roof, talking about him shooting in a restaurant, this video. But anyways, he plays a video of the watermelon exploding, and then he says, it exploded. You know, the same happened to Riva. And then Oscar Pistorius says, I was there. I don't have to look at a picture. Uh, so, and, and then finally, at one point, Oscar Pistorius kind of pauses before his answers. Um, you know, the prosecutor asks him a question. He pauses and then he gives his answer. And the prosecutor makes note of that. Um, 
And he says, well, my life is on the line. And then the prosecutor responds, Reva doesn't have a life anymore. So, Lonnie, I want to ask you, as a DA for several years, what did you think of his approach? Well, now, keep in mind, South Africa is a different system than the United States. Uh, You would not be allowed to cross-examine like this in the United States. Um, One thing that they're allowed to do there is kind of keep a running commentary. The prosecutor will kind of say, I think you're a liar. I'm now going to show why you're a liar. And he makes these comments, and when Oscar will give an answer, he'll say, that's totally wrong. That's not believable. That's improbable, which you could never do that here. You can do it on TV here, but you can't do it in a real courtroom. Um, I think that the prosecutor is known to be, they call him a pit bull, a bulldog. Um, He's very well known, very well respected there. And remember, this is not the first time most likely this judge has seen this attorney. She probably knows the styles of these attorneys and is able to weed out some of the dramatics. I do believe that the way he started out by first insisting that Oscar adopt his words to say, I killed her, when he has accepted responsibility, he's been saying from the very beginning, I'm the one who took her life. I thought that was pushing it and it wouldn't go over well in front of a jury. I think that when he then showed the watermelon video, which was an ambush of the defense because they did Mm -hmm. not put it on any evidence list and most likely here it would have been kept out because of um, not showing, not not letting the defense know ahead of time. Um, I thought that that was actually a very uh, good point. It ended up being for... Um, Oscar Pistorius because his response to that was clearly his own. You couldn't say it was coached by the defense because they didn't know this was going to happen. And his response was, that's a watermelon. I do not understand why or how you would try to compare that to a human being, uh, which I thought was brilliant. And then he said, when the uh, prosecutor said, that's exactly what happened to Reva Steenkamp's head, and then put up this extremely graphic photo, not just in front of Oscar, but in front of the whole courtroom, of Reva's head after it was blown out by the bullet. Um, And Oscar's response to that, just spontaneous, just, he said... And he kept saying, look at it, look at it. You have to look at this. And Oscar wouldn't look at it. He goes, I don't need to look at it. I was there. I lived it. I touched her head. I felt the brain matter as I was trying to help her down the stairs. I mean, it put you right there and let you know exactly, you know, you felt like Oscar putting your hands around the picture of that photograph. So I think that it was a huge mistake on the prosecutor's um, side. I think it was cruel. Mm -hmm. And I also think that it actually brought you to more of Oscar's view of exactly finding Reva in that position. So I think it was a big misstep there. However, since that, and it was a very dramatic opening, and perhaps they're used to that in South Africa, so they weren't as offended as we were, um, he has been extremely relentless and focused in getting Oscar on all these little details. And while Oscar's been a really good witness to stick to his narrative, there have been little bits and pieces of his story that he's been able to bring out details that don't quite make sense or just argue his position, the prosecutor's position, that it's totally improbable that if she heard him say, call the police, there's an intruder, that she wouldn't say something back. Or that just before he shot and she was in the toilet where we know she was behind the door, that she didn't say something like, what's going on? So that he would have heard her voice and known it was her. So those little points that he keeps going over and just hitting him over and over and over again, I think is getting out the prosecution's narrative. Regardless of what Oscar's response is, the prosecutor's been able to get out his side of the story. So, Robert, what do you think of Oscar 
on the stand, because, you know, we're kind of talking about the prosecutor's approach here. What do you think about Oscar and how he's coming across? Well, my view is a bit different. Um, Well, in terms of the prosecution, how the prosecution is coming off and how that affects Oscar, um, the prosecution... As Lonnie said, this stuff would not be allowed here in America. So I think it's very easy for me to look at uh, how the prosecution has proceeded and say, whoa, 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 this is excessive. Um, And while I do believe that there were moments that were excessive and and berating, I think that Oscar actually comes off a bit disingenuous. I, unlike much of the media, have not been moved by his retching, his constant tears. Um, For some reason, they don't really have much uh, much of an effect on me. I... Um, I'm well aware of the effect or the manipulation of emotions by um, domestic violence uh, or people who abuse their, uh, yeah, who abuse their uh, their partners. And, and that's not to say or confirm that uh, Oscar has you know abused Riva, but I mean they're definitely that's definitely an undertone here in this trial. And so um, it, it's not surprising to me that he would use emotion to manipulate uh, to, to manipulate the judge to manipulate the media. And although I can't confirm it, uh, it, it would seem that he would need to save himself. And it seems like he's kind of centered this trial, although it is his trial, instead of kind of making the focus uh, Riva to some extent. It's really been about him and his emotions and, and how he feels. So I don't think he comes across uh, quite genuine. A second point, uh, just to kind of piggyback off of what Lonnie was saying regarding uh, regarding things that don't quite make sense, there is a discrepancy between the bail affidavit hearing, I think that's what it was, the bail mm-hmm. affidavit, and uh, the actual testimony. So the bail affidavit was the only written testimony or only testimony that Oscar had to date before he actually, um, before he actually went on the stand. And in that, uh, he indicated that he went on to his balcony and, and removed a fan mm-hmm. and then closed and then came back into the apartment um, or into the house and, and closed the door. And it was then that he heard uh, heard some noise in the bathroom. Now, on the stand, he didn't say that. He said he didn't go all the way out into onto the balcony. And um, although it may seem like kind of a minor uh, discrepancy, I think, I mean, wouldn't he notice if he went out onto the balcony if Riva wasn't sitting in the bed next to him? And, and when pressed on this issue, Oscar's response was, oh, well, my attorney wrote up this, uh, this uh, affidavit and I, you know, that's his mistake. And I think that that is a that's a big problem because uh, if your attorney wrote it and you signed off on it, then essentially those are your words and you've agreed to them. And uh, it seems like he's just trying to push off fault. And and that's not something you want to see from a defendant. One big thing, uh, big piece of evidence that keeps coming up throughout this trial is the text messages between Reva Steenkamp and Oscar Pistorius, and they've asked him about this on the stand. You know, there are text messages ranging from, you know, him calling her an angel, saying they missed each other, XOXO kisses, to her saying, I'm scared of you after they got in a fight one night. So what role do you think that will play? What effect do you think that will have, these text messages kind of showing their relationship leading up to that night well i think that i'm scared of you text does a world of hurt for um oscar i I mean i know that the the number of text messages uh that are questionable versus the ones that are loving and baby and i love you and you're the best thing that's ever happened to me those are i mean the the positive ones greatly outweigh the negative ones but the ones that come out such as you know her saying reva saying i'm scared of you i think that they really weigh heavily i mean you're not really scared of a partner unless there is a possibility of some type of abuse or or, or 
physical harm. Well, I think that's one part where the defense did a great job setting out the context of those texts. I mean, the prosecutor, you know, the, the, the prosecutor at first just said, hit on the ones where it says, I'm scared of you, you know, I can't have everybody else attacking me and then you attacking me too. With the trigger words, the red flag words, absolutely. And then the defense put on and said, look, this was a very short relationship. They had only started dating. And at the beginning of the relationship, as Oscar described, these are two very high profile, very driven people, um, both insecure, both jealousies, both come from, you know, uh, bad relationships in the past. So you see in the beginning these these back and forths um, of them trying to figure out if this is going to be a serious relationship or not, seeing jealousies, um, that one about I'm scared of you. He described how it was they were at a party and he she went off and talked to a guy clearly very friendly, didn't introduce him. He got, you know, insecure and jealous. And he said, I didn't treat her right. I mean, he did talk about that. So then the question is, is that scared of you mean an abusive, you're violent, or I'm scared of you because you got so mad and so angry and so jealous? Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a couple of other emails like that, which he also described that, you know, the attacking one, he said she was getting attacked in the um, social media and on Twitter for dating him. And they were dealing with that whole big public persona versus their private relationship. And he said, you know, I'm, I am a, a high-strung athlete. I have a specific diet. I have a very controlled life. And, I, you know, it's hard for me when somebody comes into it and, you know, I'm hungry. You know, so he did. He did admit that he has these certain sides to him. So then the question is, is he really more an abusive type person or is he just a very controlling person that then melded his relationship with him, because with her? Because as the time went on, the text went on, they became extremely loving, extremely romantic, and, you know, the little endearments, but also showing a lot of support back and forth for each other's um, not only personal relationship, but their professional life, too. She was helping him cook healthy meals, and she, he was, you know, always um, supporting her on her, her weight because she was very insecure about it and helping her rewrite a new contract for a new modeling career and talking about the pictures. So they, it shows a real maturing of their relationship in the last month or so that they were starting to twine their lives together. He was buying a new house. She didn't have a place to live. He was inviting her to move in. They were buying, um, you know, furniture together. And at one point she said, you know, he was worried about the finances. And she said, if you lose all your money, don't worry, we can go run away together. Um, So it it showed that there was this, excuse me, growing relationship beyond what was happening in the beginning of the relationship. So, you know, for people who are aware of abusive relationships, you see those trigger words in there. um, And you read that kind of underlying text or it could just be a guy who is very controlling, a woman who is very driven, and trying to see if they can mesh their personalities together in a relationship. So my question is, now that the prosecution has closed, finished putting on their case, they've taken their shot at Oscar, have they proven <laughs> that he intended to kill her? That this was premeditated murder because, you know, the defense still has uh, the the team will call 14 to 17 witnesses. Mm-hmm. So we haven't even seen much of what they're going to put on to dispute what the prosecution's already put on. So, you know, I want to hear your opinions on this. But in my mind, I don't think that the judge is going to go for premeditated murder. I think she's going to want to kind of give the family some sort of justice and closure, especially because this is such a high-profile case. I'm I'm sure she's not making her decision because of that, but it must be in the back of her mind that people around the world are watching this, and this was a terrible tragedy. I think that 
she won't find that his actions were reasonable that night. So he will be found guilty of a lesser charge. But I just, I don't think that the case the prosecution put on and their cross-examination of Oscar Pistorius thus far has proven premeditated murder. Now here's the real, this is a very interesting question because to prove the premeditated murder, that's where the prosecution comes up with the theory that they were in a fight that night. There's an ongoing fight and that there's yelling and screaming going back and forth and that he then ended up killing her in this rage after the fight. Um, and you're right about the lack of evidence because there's only two people that were there that night. And one's dead and one's Oscar who's saying that didn't happen. So an interesting point came in the cross-examination yesterday. The prosecutor said, well, she was running and screaming from you after the fight, and that's why she ran into the bedroom. The defense jumped up and said, there's no foundation for that. There's no evidence of that. Now, here in America, you're very limited in what kind of hypotheticals you can throw mm-hmm. out there and say. But there in South Africa, you're allowed to say, oh, I've got this expert who's going to say this, and I'm going to bring this in, and so now I'm going to ask you about this. And you're essentially allowed to give your own evidence. It's a very interesting thing. But even in South Africa, the defense said, you don't have anything to draw on to say that there was an actual fight. And the prosecutor said, oh, yes, I do. The neighbors who said they heard a woman and a man screaming is evidence of a fight. And the defense said, no, that's not. That's still not evidence of a fight. Even if you accept that there was a woman screaming also, that still doesn't say there was a fight and that's why she was running from him. And the judge said, you need to rephrase the question to the prosecutor. Um, not necessarily saying there's not enough evidence, but you need to essentially say it's more of a hypothetical. So that is going to be a very interesting question. What evidence was there that there was a fight? That's where the text messages come in from. Um, that's where that, you know, the stomach contents, were they really up before Oscar says they were, you know, this ongoing battle as opposed to they were asleep and just woke up. But it is a very weak link to the prosecution's case, besides just the premeditation, but this whole idea of a, of a fight going on ahead of time, which would lead to why he would intend intentionally kill Riva as opposed to shoot at an intruder. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that. I mean, we, we have, haven't seen all the witnesses yet, so I think it's pretty early to tell. Based on what we have to date, I don't think that the prosecution but is going to be my able to... point is, the witnesses we have left to see are all defense right. witnesses. Right. You've heard the prosecution So if the prosecution case. already put on their case and we're, yeah. we're not convinced at, that point, at this point, then we're not going to be convinced down the road. Well, that depends, because based on cross-examination, uh, you know, you never know what will come up and, and how people will hold up under, um, under oath. So... Uh, I'll, I'll wait it out and see before I um, give my final. I mean, I have my own thoughts on uh, innocence versus guilt and whether he'll have, a, you know, what I think he should be charged with and um, um, what, he, what I think he should um, go away for. But, I mean, we'll wait and see how this plays out. Yeah, I don't want to prematurely, uh, you know, jump to predictions here, but I'm just saying the way it's going so far, right. I don't think the prosecution has put on a strong enough case to merit a premeditated verdict. Uh, but log on to yourlegallady.com. Tell me your thoughts. I have a poll up there. Is he going to be acquitted altogether? Is he going to be found guilty of premeditated murder or a lesser charge? So uh, go on to yourlegallady.com and cast your vote. All right. It's time for On the Docket. We have some great cases here today um, and, and interesting things to discuss. Uh, first up, we have uh, we have Catherine Heigl, as you recall. Catherine Heigl is a former Grey's Anatomy actress who uh, sued drugstore Dwayne Reed uh, for using her image to promote uh, the store in a tweet and uh, on Facebook. So essentially what happened is Catherine Reed was coming out of a Dwayne Reed drugstore holding God knows what and, uh, you know, whatever, whatever was in her bag and uh, paparazzi took paparazzi 
took a shot of her, and that paparazzi shot was used by Dwayne Reed in a tweet, and later also posted to their Facebook page, uh, which stated, love a quick Dwayne Reed run? Even Katie Heigl can't resist shopping at NYC's favorite drugstore. Uh, they actually tagged her on it, so she was able to see it. In that was her stupid. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. So that she was able to see it, and probably scrolling through her mentions on Twitter, like, wait a second, I didn't authorize this. Uh, from what I understand, her attorneys uh, reached out to Dwayne Reed, requested that they take down the post. Post wasn't taken down, and she filed a lawsuit in federal court claiming that they misappropriated her image. Now, a lawsuit to the tune of six million dollars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, and um, essentially, a misappropriation of of one's image is using a person's name or likeness for commercial purposes without their permission. Uh, and uh, okay, I know Catherine Heigl has a bit of a reputation in in Hollywood for kind of you know making stirs, and uh, and and this lawsuit may not have come as a surprise to many. But do you think, do either of you think, uh, that there's validity here? Do you think she went too far? Do you think it's going to do more harm than, than good? She wants to donate uh, whatever she gets from this to, uh, you know, the earnings or, or whatever she gets from this uh, lawsuit to uh, an animal welfare fund. So it's not like she wants to pocket the money herself. But what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, I think it's a legitimate lawsuit. I mean, you know, you misappropriation. You can't take somebody's uh, image and not compensate them for it. And they've obviously gotten... Um, I'm sure some type of attention and, you know, advertising value out of that. However, you know, Katherine Heigl, it's a mixed bag what she's doing to herself because she does have this reputation and in the lawsuit, Mm -hmm. uh, it goes on for her to, you know, she goes on and says how she's a highly successful television and motion pitching actress, producer and celebrity. She continues to be in high demand in the entertainment industry, which is interesting because just a few weeks earlier all over the internet it was how she was having to go back to work because she'd run out of all her money and she hasn't been working for so long. And she's going on Kickstarter to ask other people to fund her movies because yeah. she can't people don't want to pay her the uh, studios don't want right. to pay her nobody wants to hire her so it's almost highlighting the negative and and that she asked for six million dollars is outrageous yeah. so i don't think she's doing herself any uh good pr campaign right. here i think in the lawsuit they had to establish you know a cert- her celebrity in order to kind of yeah get to the damages aspect of misappropriation, but it just kind of goes to her kind of negative persona talking about how a recent search of for Katherine Heigl on the Google search engine returned over 3.2 million results, and she boasts 754,000 Twitter followers. Oh and so people, I understand that when, you know, they had to set up where she is at in her career to kind of estimate the damages and, you know, whatever. But uh, this is doing her (laughs) no favors. Um, And I think $6 million, when people read that, it's a little bit ridiculous. I think she did try to redeem herself by, um, you know, donating it to charity, but... I don't even know if people get to that part of the article. It's the last sentence, and they're like, six million, you know? <laughs> She's not yeah. even saving herself with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll see how this we'll see how this one plays out. I mean, I'm a bit surprised that if, indeed, letters were sent to Dwayne Reed asking them to take down the tweets and the Facebook posts, why they wouldn't just comply, but, you know... Yeah. Uh, they have now. Yeah. They after have. the lawsuit. <laughs> yeah, that's going to cost them a pretty penny. But, um, on to the next story. So, our, our favorite well, my favorite, actually, Real Housewives of New Jersey <laughs> um, couple, Joe and Teresa oh, Giudice, apparently are going to get a clean slate from a bankruptcy judge. Uh, if you'll recall, the couple pled um, guilty to bank fraud in March, and their finances were put on display. They filed for bankruptcy. Um, and, and in these bankruptcy documents, uh, we, we learned that their whole lives were lived through smoke and mirrors. They don't 
they almost have no equity in their home. Uh, they have $1.7 million house with about, I think it's $140,000 in equity. Uh, they have two other properties, no equity in those properties. They have a Maserati, an Escalade, a Ford 350, no equity in them. Um, and, and apparently all of the um, banks that, that loan them money are, are getting shafted. And apparently Wachovia Bank got shafted to the tune of, of uh, $5.3 million. Um, the Judiciates are, are about to get prison time. I think Teresa is looking at 27 months, and her husband Joe is looking at, I think it is 43. And um, yeah, we're getting a full display of, of, of this lavish lifestyle that turned out not to be so. Uh, does any of this come as a surprise to you guys? The whole smoke and mirrors lifestyle to me doesn't come as a surprise in that they signed up for Real Housewives of New Jersey and they kind of wanted to show this grand life. We've seen this before play mm-hmm. out in some of the other Real Housewives franchises with Taylor Armstrong. She's mm-hmm. had a lot of money problems. She was in Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. So I'm not that surprised. Um it will be interesting to see this play out on the new season because right. um producers have said that the you know, legal proceedings are being caught on film. So it will be interesting to me. Um, I just want to know, are you surprised that the judge kind of allowed them to have this clean slate? I'm shocked by that. But I do uh, also believe that in the federal court where they're going to be sentenced to um, jail time, that federal court can also order that they pay restitution to the victims. So there might be a second way around this where they might still have to pay some of that money. There's a fine, and then there's still restitution to the victims. And these victims are still out this money. I don't know if it was the judge saying, hey, all of you banks were stupid in the first place to <laughs> loan these guys millions of dollars when they had apparently been fudging and you know um, committing fraud in their tax returns and these loan documents for years, even before they got on the uh, Real Housewives franchise. Franchise. And so um, I, I don't know if part of that was the bank, you know, the judge just saying, you guys blew it. Or if it was just like, you know what, it's getting blood out of a turnip. You're, there's nothing here because the bankruptcy uh, monitor had been trying to pull out money from somewhere, although he didn't make them sell everything. I mean, that, that's what most people have to do when they go on bankruptcy is they take everything from you. They sell it and whatever money goes to pay off your creditors. So you don't have all of the, you know, the cars and stuff. And they only came up with. Um, you know, seven thousand five hundred dollars. That doesn't even pay for their sea do that whatever that thing is is sitting in their um, driveway um, to pay off towards creditors. So, and if any of us have watched any episode of The Real Housewives, you can see, you know, just that's like two purses yeah. that she carries they around. Are lavish. So I'm not sure why and she's on this show. That. She's yeah. an author. Yeah. You know, they've. I'm sure she's done some sort of other clothing or makeup or yeah. something like all the Real Housewives end up doing. So that oh, was a little bit surprising. Which is me. also interesting because I think they also, I don't know if this was covered on the show or not, but supposedly she's going to some of these, you know, book signings and things and she's saying, I'll sign autographs, but for cash, pay me $25 or <laughs> $50 cash. And so they're going to look at that as saying, wait a minute, she's still trying to defraud us. You know, she's taking money under the table that we won't be able to track. And so that's all um, okay for the judge to consider during sentencing. So. Yeah, it's not looking good, and um, we'll be able to look at it because it will be on the next season. So <laughs> we will see. Uh, we'll see how this plays out. Um, our next story: Vivid Entertainment, which is a pornographic. <laughs> 
film production company out here in L.A. Uh, the executives are freaked out because Farah Abraham, who was a star on MTV's popular reality show, Mom, <laughs> yeah. um, she did a sex tape with Vivid. Uh, we come to find out later that the sex tape was essentially orchestrated between <gasps> her and another, uh, like, a, a, an actual porn actor. So and you're telling me she wasn't dating the porn star <laughs> James Dean? I think that was his name, right? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a surprise. <laughs> but she does this sex tape. It, it, it apparently does really, really well. I don't know. haven't seen the figures. Mm-hmm. But uh, now she is allegedly coming out with a book about her experience in the sex industry and the, I think, I don't know, the making of her sex tape and everything that went on behind the scenes of, of, of that experience for her. And the reason why Vivid is freaking out, particularly um, Steve Hirsch, who's the head of uh, Vivid Entertainment, because he thinks that because he orchestrated this whole sex tape uh I don't want to call it a debacle, but I guess it's paid off for her, so maybe she wouldn't call it that. Um, he orchestrated the whole thing, and he believes that it's a trade secret. He thinks that other film companies are going to, porn, pornographic film companies, production companies, are going to try and copy copy his style, and that he could really lose money if they, if they figure out what it is he does to make all these monies. If you recall, he also is the, was the producer, his company was the producer of the Kim Kardashian Ray J sex tape. So, uh, I mean, and I believe also the Paris, if I could be incorrect, but it may have also been the Paris Hilton sex tape. So they have built quite a reputation, a solid <laughs> reputation in, um, in in celebrity sex tapes, and I don't think that they want that to be, um, they don't want any competition to follow them for that. Um, filed a letter, he, he sent a letter uh, to Farah's attorneys asking her to cease and desist because he feels as if um, she'll be violating her confidentiality agreement if she discusses anything in the book about the making of her video. And what are your thoughts on whether there or not the the behind the scenes making of a sex video is really a protected trade secret? Well, <laughs> I don't think it's a secret. I mean, I think you know there's been enough of these sex tapes from the Kim Kardashian and on that we've all caught on pretty well that mm-hmm. they're you know about as um, spontaneous as as a reality show. I right. mean, it's everything is set up and. Um, I don't think there's really like a huge secret there. Um, it's interesting this relationship between Steve Hirsch and Farrah Abraham because apparently there was some prior interaction between the two where when uh, Farrah was out promoting this tape for Vivid um, that she made allegations that she was drugged and raped while she was out there. And Steve <laughs> oh Hirsch stepped up and said, wait a minute, if you're going to say that, I, you know, Come in and take a polygraph, and if you pass it, I'll give you a million bucks. I mean, it's almost like they're they're generating um, PR together. Mm-hmm. And now she has this book coming. Oh, and she she didn't come in for the polygraph, by the way. And now she's got this book, and it's right. a thinly veiled f- fictional book. So that's obviously how she's trying to get around the confidentiality agreements. Well, this is just a fictional book. I'm just writing about a girl who kind of maybe had a life like mine, but I, you know. And she'll tell as part of the story, perhaps something that you know really happened with Steve Hirsch, and now he's you know suing it's bringing PR to her new book so you know I don't know if this is them working together colluding behind the (laughs) scenes or if they really have this love-hate relationship but um you know I think it's going to go the way of the um the whole allegations about being drugged and and raped I think it'll kind of just disappear yeah I don't think a cease and desist I mean I don't know I, I don't think it's very strong I don't know if it'll really materialize into a lawsuit what do you think can she just cease and desist herself? Can she just disappear? <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel. Unlikely. I mean, likely. Sarah <laughs> Abraham is the new, you know, Heidi and Spencer, the new Spidey, uh, like the new, you know, all these people, these people who just like, 
want fame so desperately that they just like pimp themselves out and get plastic surgery and have a sex yeah. tape and write a book and this and that. Her dad's writing a book now. Like she, one of the things that came from the sex tape, she went and got a pregnancy test, even though it was called backdoor teen mom. Oh, so <laughs> oh my so goodness. she is a ridiculous character. And I just yeah. think that we should stop paying her any attention at all. Yeah. I did put her on the docket yeah. because I think it's a ridiculous story, but from now on, I, you know, there's certain people who I will still talk about on this show, um, even though they don't, you know, they bother me. Um, cough, cough, Justin Bieber, Chris Brown, <laughs> because, you know, they are newsworthy. Right. They get into a lot of legal debacles, but I think, I don't know, I might cease and desist myself from discussing Farrah Abraham after this point. I just think this is exactly what she wants. Yeah. Chris Brown, Justin Bieber, I think they're just stupid. <laughs> you know, they, they don't want us to be talking about them. They're just, you know, yeah, so. you know, ill and, you know, just all their enablers around them. Farrah Abraham if she's watching this, she is loving this. She's come to our studios, by the way, for After Buzz mm. uh, for Teen Mom. Really? If she is watching this, Phil's, uh, Phil, our producer, is giving his thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> if she is watching this, she is loving this. This is exactly what she yeah. wants. And I totally got caught when I was putting up together this rundown. I was like, oh, well, here's a, an interesting legal story. And I was like, oh, you played Sarah Abraham, we are feeding right Mari into Fagel, your can you hear me? <laughs> Let's just let her go the Mari way Mari Fagel, can yeah, you hear me? She'll just trot off into uh, the sun. Phil, yeah, Phil's going to share a little bit of a Farrah Abraham exclusive. Okay, Phil. Well, it's not an exclusive because I can try to get her on the phone. I do have her phone number. Okay, let's do it. All um, right. It may or may not well work say, out, so we'll see. Say, Farrah, this was our last time talking about you. He's going to try to get her on the phone. <laughs> oh. oh, my. Okay. So um, let's keep let our headphones now. on and um, let's go through the rest of On the Docket. Let's see if Farrah Abraham has any response to my wanting to cease and desist her from just as it served. So one last. <laughs> Ready one more. more. Okay. Um, while we're waiting on while we're waiting on Farah, the last story we have here on on the docket is um, the U.S. Supreme Court rejecting an appeal on Monday from a photography studio in New Mexico that refused to photograph a lesbian couple's wedding, and uh, the justices left in place a unanimous ruling by the uh, New, the. Uh, New Mexico Supreme Court that said uh, Elaine Photography violated New Mexico's Human Rights Act by refusing to photograph the same-sex ceremony in the same way as if it had refused to uh, photograph a wedding between people of two uh, of different races. And uh, the co-founder of the studio... Elaine said that taking these photos of of this lesbian couple would violate her religious beliefs. She said she also had a right of artistic expression um, under the First Amendment. Uh, And the case was cited by lawmakers in several states, including Arizona, uh, which got a blistering response um, to potential legislation about allowing uh, business owners to be able to exempt people from lawsuits if they're doing business with same-sex couples and um, if, if doing business with same-sex couples violates their religious beliefs. Um, and, and when that was put on the uh, ballot and uh, was put forward in Arizona, Jan Brewer, vetoed, uh, governor of uh, Arizona, totally vetoed it because it, it would basically, uh, the criticism was it would basically give free reign to any business owner who doesn't believe in sex, same-sex marriage, uh, like a valid form of marriage, uh, feels that it violates their religious beliefs to discriminate against same-sex couples. And so uh, we have both sides. We have free speech and then we have uh, anti-discrimination laws. Uh, And I'm I'm very... I have to say that I'm very pleased that the Supreme Court ruled in favor because... 
but they didn't rule in favor. They they decided not to take the case at all right. and then left in place the lower court's um, ruling. And so I am pleased with the result, but it's the same type of thing as with the Prop 8 case. Correct. And they said, you know, you don't have standing you know, in this court, and they left in place the lower court ruling without tackling the issue. So I'm not going to say I'm pleased with the Supreme Court because they're not... Obviously, this is an issue if several states, you know, are considering measures like this. Obviously, this is something that I think the highest court of the land should address and should come out with a ruling on. Uh, but they have decided to kind of punt as they have well, been doing. It up to the right. Yeah. They're going to let each state decide I what think they that, want. And, which, is, which is very typical with the Supreme Court. A, a lot of times they'll just, until, until the heat absolutely reaches, reaches a fever pitch, uh, they'll wait. And, and although it's not ideal, um, um, I'm I'm pleased that it wasn't uh, wasn't overturned. And, well, mm-hmm. I'll say though, there's been plenty of heat on this. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember it was just a few months ago that Arizona had this proposed legislation, and when the public kind of caught on to it, there was this huge outcry to the point where finally the governor Brewer, Brewer stood up and you know said, "Okay, I'm vetoing it." But that legislation had been going along just fine before the public picked up on it, and it was so funny to see the legislators who actually had proposed it and were going to go ahead and vote for it were like, "Oh, all of a sudden what's Public scrutiny was, oh, no, we had that. that's not fair. That's discrimination. You know, it's this whole point of, you know, and there's very strong opinions on both sides, you know, it, discrimination mm-hmm. versus free speech, but also, you know, religious freedoms. And the people who are on that side are saying, look, this is my religious belief. I should not only be able to say what my religious belief is without people attacking me. Because you guys don't want to be attacked for your beliefs. I don't want to be attacked for mine. But I should also be able to act on those beliefs in my work environment and wherever I am. Now, the, you know, in the United States, it's never been allowed to be to the point where you discriminate. So right. it's not a surprise that the legislation trying to allow that into the workplace is not being passed. But I'll tell you, there was a Washington State florist, a Colorado cake artist, a Kentucky T-shirt printer, all who did not want to perform their services for same-sex couples or for, you know, a gay pride festival. So it's coming up over and over again. And it's I think it's going to be a heated battle for a while, like Mari said, um, until there is is some type of federal declaration, each state is going to continue to have these battles. Yeah, I, I, I think that actually Arizona made the case for the Supreme Court. I felt like the Supreme Court really didn't have to even touch this case because it was almost as if Arizona did the job for them. It was like, mm, look, see? This yeah, but there's, still eight, other, for there's you. still eight other states who have the same type of legislation pending. So it's it's still being fought in different states. And, you know, we assume that everybody around the nation is all in one position. It's not. In oh, every no. state, you know, it's very divided. Well, I think, uh, with uh, like many laws, uh, it, it's it's going to be continue to be left up to the states until it absolutely, absolutely, absolutely has to go federal. And, and while I'm of the opinion that it does have to go federal, and it's long overdue, um, I, I think that w- the hope is that the federal government, uh, I think the federal government's hope is that the state governments will look at what happened in Arizona and um, and take heed. I'm not sure if that's how it'll play out, but uh, not surprised they decided to just leave this one alone and stay out of it. I'm not surprised that they kind of punted, but I, I do think if there's so many states kind of tackling this issue that there may be a need for federal court ruling on this. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, with Prop 8, with the Prop 8 case in California, you know, I was pleased with the result that people could marry. Um, but, you know, 
I would have been even more pleased <laughs> with the Supreme Court actually, you know, taking on the case as opposed to saying, oh, you don't have standing. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I wasn't that surprised. I do want to say to um, Phil, before we get into tipping the scales, if Farrah doesn't pick up. Uh, All right. So here's the update. OK, because I was going to say, I'll leave a voicemail for her. Why don't we leave a collective <laughs> justice to serve voicemail she, for her? OK, so. I believe the last time her and I kind of were in touch, because um, we used to actually text back and forth. Oh. <laughs> so, Phil, Phil, how do you feel oh, about yeah. my cease and desist? You want me to be talking about her, don't you? Do you want to read her book, Phil? Phil is not good. I don't. I don't know. Well, I'd be. I'm curious about what the book is going to be. Because um, here's the thing, she came out with two um, porn videos, and I believe there was going to be a third. And I joked about how it was going to be the porn trilogy of porns. <laughs> Um, but but we never got that, you know, uh, the, the first one's the most well-known, but trust me, there is a second one. (laughs) We trust you, Phil. Wait, so what are your text messages with her like? Am I right in saying she's just like, uh, you know, Spidey, uh, Heidi Montag and Spencer Pratt in being just a total fame Her whole thing is, um, (laughs) you know, uh, and again, this is not necessarily, I'm just going to kind of give it as matter-of-factly as I can without, you know, saying any judgment. She's just very much like she wanted to present herself as being um, really in the know and having a lot of connections. And she she was like, oh, I'm going to help you out get this and this, and you guys should be doing this. And um, it just started off like that, like, hey, you know, if there's an event you guys can't get into, let me know. I can get you in there. So generous. (laughs) Very nice Uh, of her. So, you know, that was was kind of the extent of our relationship. Were you there for that show, or did she come in twice? Uh, no, I wasn't there. I saw the photos of it, and I and I, okay, and I tweeted with her. I used to host the Teen Mom After Buzz After Show, oh. and so I would tweet back and forth with her trying to get her in the show, but then I stopped hosting, and then she came in. I mean, at the time, <laughs> again, this was when she came in. At this point, it was two years ago, but, you know, she seemed nice at the very least. Like, you know, she was very personable and things like that. Um, but could it be have been very much a facade? Yeah, probably. I don't, you know, but... Again, I'm trying to give as matter-of-factly as I can without forming judgment. But okay, if did. you can get a voicemail, I will leave one, and we will all leave I think, our I final think for good words. measure. I think for good measure, she changed her phone number completely. Oh, Phil. <laughs> I know. I, have, I mean, I could go through publicists and things like that, but that, w- that would take longer than okay, the show. Okay, so I'm giving everyone a roundtable final word on Farrah Abraham before we ban her from being talked about on this show. We're ready for it. Ready to receive it. Phil. <laughs> Don't worry, you can talk about uh, her on what? other shows. Don't worry. Good luck. I mean, Just not you know what? Show. I think people will buy it. Is it, in terms of the book, is it giving away secrets? People, a.k.a. I, Phil, will yeah. buy it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. The audience is so huge that I, I know you talked about, like, how it's crazy for teen moms to go, you know, get pregnant just to be on a teen mom show yeah. at the point. You know, that was a big point of controversy, and I still think that's crazy. But for the girls that might want to get pregnant just to be on a show, they might read her book, too, just to get into the porn industry, mm. which is oh, kind of really mm. – hey, What, what it's wonderful really news yeah. for uh, the upcoming generations. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Rob, final. final words on Farah before we go to tipping the scales. Uh, oh, me? I get to I get to. We're all going to each give our final words okay. on Farah because we're never going to talk about her again on this <laughs> show. Good luck, girl, and Godspeed. That's all I got to say. You're so nice. <laughs> I try. I try. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I've never talked about Farah Abraham before, ever, before the show, and I'll probably never do oh, it again. It's first and only <laughs> it was my first. Yeah, and, and that was enough. Thank you. <laughs> Farah, good riddance. <laughs> okay. All right, tipping the scales.
We have a very um, eye-catching, ear-catching uh, headline for this Tipping the Scales this week. It is, is there a double standard between male and female rapists? Rapists is the word we're using here. Um, and it comes from a, another headline, which you probably have heard many times before. It sounds very familiar. A former drama teacher who admitted to having sex with a 16-year-old student will not see any jail time for the offense. Now, I think it's interesting that the headline is we're asking about the double standard between rapists, because usually when it's a teacher, we don't even use the word rapist. We just talk about the teacher who sexually abused their um, student. But um, it, it that's the appropriate word here. So Kelly Burgess, 26, of Newport, England, was given a seven-month suspended sentence, which means she doesn't have to do any time um, after she pleaded guilty to four sexual offenses of breach of trust engaging in a sexual act with a child. Um, And the judge said, the relationship, albeit conducted as if between equals, was not a relationship between equals. You were older, you were his teacher, and you should at all times have known better. Um, and the relationship supposedly lasted for seven months. There was over a thousand texts exchanged wow. between the teacher and the victim, some explicit. Uh, she had three naked pictures of her victim um, on her phone. Um, and they only found out about this relationship when the boy visited a sexual health clinic. We don't know why, but that's how it came to light. Um, she was fired from her job, and she must register as a sex offender for 10 years. That's essentially her punishment. And she's also prohibited from contact with children. So obviously she will not be able to be a teacher anymore. But a very um, you know, intriguing question is was posted by The Telegraph's Christina Oden, who said that the sentence would have been more harsh if Kelly Burgess had been a Keith Burgess. And we've seen this over and over again, these uh, female teachers, uh, pictures of them, and, you know, then they have these young male victims, and you hear about them being arrested, and then you don't hear about them going to jail, they get probation. So let's start with you, Um, Mari. Do you think that there is a double standard, and do you think it's just based on the time-old feelings that a woman can't really rape a man is that? Do you think what where the basis? That's of it is? why I I use the titles are double standard between male and female rapists. I read this story and I thought, you know, if if Jerry Sandusky had been a Jenny Sandusky, mm-hmm. I think it would have turned out differently. I think, like you said, if Ke- Kelly had been a Keith, um, and another thing that the person who kind of brought up this question of whether it's a double standard posed was when a female teacher is involved with a student, it's kind of like in our pop culture kind of mainstream of a Mrs. Robinson, a hot for teacher, you know, those music videos, the movies, we've seen this play out over and over. The kind of, it's kind of glamorized and like, oh wow, how cool for this 16-year-old boy that he's sleeping with his 26-year-old teacher. Mm -hmm. If it was a 26-year-old male teacher sleeping with a 16-year-old female student, I don't think people would be glamorizing it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. Yeah. Yeah. Rawa? Um, I, uh, I have several concerns with this. Of course, I totally agree uh, with Mari, but I think it, it really goes to the what we do is, in the media. We minimize the victimization of young boys and uh, also 
there is some type of of pride and initiation by sex with an older woman uh, that has been immortalized in 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 pop culture that that is really really disturbing. I think John Stewart uh, once referred to I think when the Mary Kay Letourneau case mm-hmm. was uh, was coming forward, and I believe that was a case where uh, she had a relationship. She was a teacher. She had a relationship with a student. At, uh, she he went to jail. Very young. He was very young. Yeah. She came back and I think she married him. Yeah, they had, they had and they've had together. kids. They've had but kids she together. went to jail. Right. But, but not at the very beginning. I don't think at the very beginning she was on probation right. and then yeah. she was having sex with them in the car again. They caught him. Then she yeah. went to jail. And, and she was having babies throughout this too. So yeah. and then eventually they got married. And uh, I think John Stewart referred to him as as lucky at one point. You know, and, and yeah. kind of a satire. And 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 it was just it, you laugh, but then. You, th- you stop and you think about it, and you're like, wow, this is really disturbing. Uh, yeah. And it, it really goes back to, I think, again, the victimization of, of, of young boys not being taken as seriously of, as that of um, as that of young women. Also, uh, the fact that men so underreport or boys underreport uh, sexual assault by by older women. Well, and it's interesting because I think when it's it, like you said, the older male teacher and the you know young girl t- student, the parents of that student are going to be flipping out, both yeah. the mother and the father. But when it's the young boy, you know, I don't know how what the percentages are, but there are is this perception that the dad would be kind of saying, hey, way to go, son, mm, or, you know, you. you know, you're getting your education. Um, you know, I, I don't believe all dads are like this. And I think that what that misses, like you said, the victimization of boys is that there is a side to this whole sexual abuse of young boys. It's not that every young boy wants to have sex. It's the whole circumstances and the context. There is a, a, a true victim component to that when it's being done by somebody you trust and you have to keep it a secret and they don't really know what's going on or do they really fully consent is there pressure you know you just don't know all of the circumstances of what's going on so it it is clearly an abusive situation whether you know you think that you know that's an age where boys should be having sex or not so and i want people to weigh in on on this i want to share uh, a tweet from Robinette72 says, there's a huge double standard. Female teachers get light sentences. Male mm-hmm. teachers jail time. We need to end the double standard. Yeah. Uh, so weigh in on this because, um, you know, like like we said, some people think, oh, well, you know, that th- that's cool. Like, he he's 16. It's only, you know, only a 10-year age difference. Yeah. Look how if pretty the tables she is. Will, right. were turned, yeah. I don't think we would be having this conversation. Right. And then, there, you know, so there's the focus on the victims, so boys versus girls. And then there's, I think we also got to take a look at the the actual, the predators. Yes. Uh, I mean, males are generally viewed as, as predatory, whereas women are viewed as caregivers. So there's already that perception right there. So when you put that with the, uh, the kind of backwards victimization role that we put on our our young girls and young boys then there's no there's no wonder that these sentences are lighter or non-existent yeah. for uh, for women and mary kay letourneau i mean her victim was like 14 12, i mean we call those child molesters yeah. when it's the guy going after a young girl those are child molesters you know and and we don't usually use those words when it's the woman so well, tweet me at Mari Fagel. I want to hear your opinions. You know, is this hot for teacher too glamorized? And uh, should we end the double standard? Well, it looks like uh, that's the end of today's show. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We'll be here again next Friday. Join us. And um, you can reach me at, at Rawa on Twitter. I'm at, at Lonnie Coombs. And you're at... Uh, at Mari Fagel. We will be back next week, Rawa mm-hmm. and I, with uh, Lisa Bloom. She will be talking about her book, Suspicious Nation. So uh, stay tuned for that. Looking forward to it. Have a great week, guys. 
from producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.